You're listening to the Science Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. Today's program is about terrorism, and the subject of terrorism brings up a lot of different reactions in people. Fear and anger, of course, especially since the tools of terrorists right now are things like knives and cars, things that can't be controlled even by the most vigilant police force. Another common reaction on the topic of terrorism is political posturing, blustery rhetoric, cliches, meaningless statements like, they hate us for our freedom. What you don't really hear so much is rational analysis based in science. Who are these people who are committing these horrible crimes? Where did they come from? Why are they doing it? What drove them to the place where they would do something like that? Are they crazy? Are they sick? Are they criminals? Are they poor and desperate? Are they married with kids? What is the actual data on all of that? How is it being analyzed? How is it being used? And how can the tools of science be used to actually do something useful with respect to terrorism? Mark Sageman is a forensic psychiatrist, which I didn't even know was a profession until I read his recent book, Misunderstanding Terrorism. He also has a book that just came out. It's called Turning to Political Violence, The Emergence of Terrorism. It's a lot longer and goes into more historical examples of political violence, which is the term that he uses for what most of us call terrorism. And I just have to say, I think this is really important work because it examines these horrible actions that people do, the killing, the violence, from a systems perspective, the perspective of why it is happening, kind of like you might examine an epidemic or a famine with the underlying idea that if you understand something from a systems perspective, from a scientific perspective, you might actually be able to prevent it. Please note that there are two versions of today's program, a half-hour version for the radio and an unabridged version that's almost an hour long. They're both at scienceradiocafe.org. Let's go now to our conversation with Mark Sageman. Welcome to the Science Radio Cafe. Thank you. So at the beginning of this book, you talk about the challenges of studying terrorism as a social scientist because so much of the material is classified. You're one of relatively few people who's had access to both the tools of social science and real actual data. What are the advantages of studying terrorism from a social science perspective and the disadvantages of not doing so? Well, I previously wrote an article on the stagnation on terrorism research on just that issue. And tongue-in-cheek, I concluded that social scientists who try to understand things, they actually understood everything, but they knew nothing about terrorism because they didn't have the data. But government analysts who were not schooled in methodology knew everything but understood nothing. And so you really have to merge the two. This is very different from the 1950s in this country, for instance, when the government funded Russian uh, study centers at prestigious universities where a lot of academics could study Russia, basically, because the government did not have much more of an insight than the academics. And this really was a much richer environment where you had academics going in and out of government institutions like the Rand Institution or even the national labs. There was much more of a back and forth. This is not the case in terrorism. And why is that? Is there, I mean, there's kind of an anti-intellectual phenomenon going on in society, or what's no, going th- on? No, this is just recent. <laughs> no, going back to 2001, I think the government decided to 
teach their analyst in-house. So basically, they took people that could pass a security clearance, a polygraph, namely people to me who have very little intellectual curiosity and have not done anything risky so that they could pass the clearances. So those people did not have the methodological background of graduate students uh, because they're mostly people who graduated from college, usually Midwestern school. They really did not have that much broader background that uh, people had in the 1950s to try to understand Russia. And so what happens when that intellectual curiosity, that intellectual background isn't there? What, what are you seeing? Groupthink. <laughs> Very simply, groupthink. They all think the same way. They all think that the heroes protecting society, they basically identify against terrorists. And so they are virtuous and terrorists evil. They want dimensional. And so there's this lack of understanding the enemy. We will talk about how people come to perpetrate acts of terrorism. You use the term political violence in your book. But let's first talk about some of the myths about why people go in that direction. You talk about a lot of them, like it turns out that people are not psychopaths, they're not brainwashed, and so on. Tell us about some of these myths and how they got there. Well, we've known from uh, social psychology that when people try to understand others, who have done bad things, they tend to attribute the origin of those bad things to personal characteristics of those people. It's it's what called a fundamental error of attribution in psychology. And this is really uh, very much manifest in terrorism studies. So if they're bad, either they're criminal. At first, there were very few criminals, or very few people who had a criminal background who became terrorists. This is kind of changing because any wave of protest degrades over time. So the original members of the the wave of protest are usually intellectuals, graduate students, or people like that, the elite of the country. And as it catches on, the trendsetters move on to something else. And basically, the riffraff comes in. And that's very much what we have now in what I call the global neo-jihad, where you have people with criminal backgrounds now, especially in Europe, that imagine themselves to be soldiers defending the community. So mental illness, now you see a little bit more, but most terrorists are not mentally ill. They don't do this because they're sick. They do this for violence. Political violence is first and foremost political, and this is something that people have trouble understanding. They tend to you know, blame, say, well, who could do something like that? Therefore, they have to be mentally ill. And it turns out that terrorists are actually saner than the normal individual because they weed out anybody who they don't trust. Usually people who are mentally ill are not trusted by other people. So in collective violence, you have very few people who are mentally ill. But when you have the lone actors that we see now, many of them do have some mental illness. So you probably go from percentage of maybe 5 to 10% with mental illness, which is maybe half of the normal population, you know, the rate of the, the incidence in normal population, to now maybe 30% who decide, well, this is a good thing to do. Why, why don't I do it? Why don't I, you know, suicidal people who say, oh, it's a good way to die, you know. And we've seen that already, for instance, in Japan. There was a case right after the London bombing in 2005 
where this fellow was suicidal and say, wow, that's a good way to die. And so for no reason, no political reason, he decided to actually build a bomb and blow himself up in a subway. But of course, he was incompetent, so the bomb didn't go off. He was arrested. And, but you can see that uh, mental illness is not there in collective action. It could be in individuals. But most people blame the ideology. So people have something in them that kind of pushes them towards that type of violence. And it turns out that people do this sort of action for all kinds of reasons. I've looked at 34 campaigns of political violence from the French Revolution to the present. And the people who did that for republicanism, they did that for socialism, they did that for communism, they did that for Buddhism even, you know, talking about the least violent of all religion. Yeah. I'm Shinri Kyo and the Rajneeshis. <laughs> were very much Buddhist. So you can see that any idea can be drawn to the extreme and justify violence, but it's not really the reason why people do violence in the first place. It's a justification that they have afterwards. One of the things that you talk about is, first of all, when somebody comes to believe in an ideology, there's a lot of people who use extremely violent language, but the gap between using violent language, which we see on the internet, and then actually perpetrating a violent act is a pretty big gap. And you also have this idea that people are coming to, mostly men, identify as soldiers, identify as kind of part of a select group of soldiers, of of military people. But instead of, like, I mean, if you join the military here in the United States or in any European country, you are part of a top-down military. This is a bottom-up situation. Explain that to us. It, it very much is. And by the way, the male predominance is really true in the global neo-jihad. It is not true for political violence in general. As a matter of fact, women were very prominent in SDS, the Weathermen, in the Battermindhof Gang, in the Red Brigade, in ETA. I mean, the leadership, actually, in some of those organizations were women. So it's not that women are not inherently nonviolent. It's just that in this community that's violent, that is not their role. It's not the norms of this community, which actually prevents women from participating. Let me just ask you a quick question. You've been using the word neo-jihad. Explain that to our listeners. Yes. I'm trying to label this movement in a way that people will understand. It is global because they don't go after their own government. They go after the far enemy, namely the West. It's a movement that originated in the Middle East, so they, they actually target the West and it is not jihad, according to mainstream Muslims, because jihad is a rule-bound phenomenon. You know, you can't really kill innocent, you can't kill women, you can, you know. And so Muslims don't consider it jihad. But if I don't use the word jihad, nobody will understand who I'm talking to. So I basically cheat, I fudge, and I call it a neo-jihad. So and it's not about insulting anybody. It really is... How do I convey what I, you know, the people I'm interested in? I'm not really interested in studying jihad or non-jihad. I'm really interested in those people who do that type of violence for this particular reason. So I call it the global neo-jihad. So let's get back to this idea of a kind of bottom-up organization of neo-jihad political violence. Right. So when states created a monopoly of legitimate violence within a country, within a territory, 
they instituted really top-down institution like police, army, and so on. But the people who people those institutions uh, very much volunteer now to become part of them. So it's a bottom-up movement that join a top-down institution, they become top-down large organization where people follow orders and so on. That's what you have in an army. Here, you don't really have this type of top-down structure, so the movement has to be created from the bottom up, and some organization that survive over time then sometimes create top-down organizations, such as the IRA that survived decades. And, you know, Al-Qaeda was a top-down organization. ISIS is very much a top-down organization. But the people actually want to join them, or in the imagination, they imagine themselves to be part of that community. They do it, their action on behalf of ISIS, usually don't answer to the order of ISIS. They just sacrifice themselves on behalf of this organization, their contribution to that imagined community. So that creates, that brings up a couple of questions. I mean, first of all, in the mind of people on the street, people reading the paper and say, this was, this act of terrorism was perpetrated by somebody from ISIS. The leadership of ISIS has never heard of them. That's correct. Why do they do it? Like, what is the process by which somebody who is not any official part of ISIS comes to murder others in the name of an organization that they're not officially part of? This is really part of an implication of what makes us human. We basically try to look at the social world and understand it, and we usually divide it into people like us and people who are not us, kind of us and them. And categorization is really in contrast to who we are not. So. This is a political crime, and so the origin of this was there was some kind of grievance, and it could be, you know, for instance, it could start student protesting the terrible food at the university, and so if they can demonstrate for better food, and the dean of the school called the police, and the police beats up the student, well, the food now is irrelevant. It's a police beating. That's so it becomes a political grievance now. Right. So. The first step in this is really the acquisition of a political social identity. And the collection of all those people who imagine themselves to be part of this political protest community is this political protest. So it's an imagined community. It's a discursive community. It's a community where people always talk to each other. And eventually, or pretty quickly, it becomes a counterculture because they define themselves in contrast to usually the state, because the state is the one that beat them up in the first place. When you talk about the kind of discussions that are going on, and let's talk about organizing this neo-jihad kind of idea, people who are committing acts of terrorism, whether it be in Europe or in the United States, are they talking to each other over dinner? Are they talking on the internet? What is the nature of those discussions? They're always talking to each other <laughs> on the internet. People used to kind of talk to their friends on street corners, but now with the new technology, a lot of the conversation take place online. But even the technology kind of changes. A while ago, they had jihadi website where people, you know, participate in discussion on the jihadi website, but that's no longer the case. Those have disappeared a long time ago, and the discussion takes place on social media, so Facebook, Twitter, but those are vulnerable because they're not really encrypted. So 
people of ISIS, they use Telegram, which is, I think, a, a German system of communicating. It's heavily encrypted. The problem is that the word doesn't spread out, so they can talk about things on Telegram, but they don't spread the message. They have to come back to the social media to spread it, so they have to come back to Twitter and, and Facebook to spread their message because, in a sense, they, they view the world a certain way, and they like to proselytize because, in a sense, if other people believe what they believe, it can validate what they believe. So you, you have a lot of proselytism in all those political protest community. But the political protest community itself is not a violent one. The first step, as I mentioned, it becomes violent on the three conditions. And the three condition is first the escalation of conflict between this community and often the state. So what are some examples of that? Um, the 1960s provide <laughs> a lot of rich example of the youth of America protesting, first of all, the government's attempt to prevent civil rights promotion in this country. And then from 65 onwards, you had the added protest against Vietnam. And so the government, even now we know the FBI, a whole program, COINTELPRO, which is counterintelligence program, which was originally designed against communists, now expands dramatically against any dissident within the country. And the FBI was complicit in killing the leadership of, for instance, the Black Panthers, anybody who could raise, who could be a messiah for the protesters. And of course, on the other side, the mainstream media and the society doesn't really know of this escalation but the victims do. So the people within the political protest community know very well that they are being targeted by the government, and so they escalate themselves. But what does that look like today when you're talking about Middle Eastern and or Muslim communities? So today what we've had in the 1990s, after the first Gulf War, a few Muslims uh, started identifying with the victims, namely people in Iraq, who were starving. I mean, a lot of people died during the embargo of Iraq in the 1990s, and this really was the origin of 9-11, of the attack of 9-11, you know. So at first, to protest, they had the bombings in East Africa and then the USS Cole, and after the bombing in East Africa, we sent missiles both to a, a factory in Khartoum and destroying some training camps of Al-Qaeda. So you can see the escalation of conflict on both sides, and I think it was uh, only after 1998 that Al-Qaeda decided, oh yeah, we'll, we'll try this operation again to the United States. But still, very, very few young people were attracted to these ideas. What really kind of set them off was really the invasion of Iraq in 2003. We may not be conscious of it here, but it was extremely unpopular anywhere else in the world. In Britain itself, there were over 2 million people who protested against the run-up, the invasion of Iraq on February 15, 2003. It was called Stop the War. And basically the government, British government, lied to their people. But you didn't have any protests like that in France because France did not participate. So there was no escalation. So you can see very much that this type of escalation is very much local, how people perceive it. So the British very much felt that there was an escalation of conflict and they saw people dying. 
they imagined themselves to be part of this community where the victims were being killed abroad. And this was the fertile ground for a few to volunteer to become soldiers to defend the community. But this escalation also has a verbal component. And this verbal component is what I call the cumulative radicalization of discourse, where now people to conceptualize, to understand what's happening, they just use warlike metaphors. And if you start conceptualize something as a war, the only possible solution, uh, war attacks. And so you can see it constricts uh, the way people think about things. Uh, and so it's not so much an extremist ideology, it's extremism of the speech, of the discourse that kind of narrows down people to the only solution is just an attack. You're saying that that kind of speech comes in response to actions like the invasion of Iraq in 2003? And also the speech of the U.S. government, right? you know, who vilify what they call terrorists, but who the terrorists think of themselves as freedom fighters. And it's very much, we have to eradicate them. There's a clash of civilization. And so you can see that very much it's an escalation on both sides, not just one side. So right. that's the first condition. The second condition is a disillusionment with the effectiveness of protest. And that has many consequences. Most people are disillusioned. They really kind of lose a sense of self-efficacy, and they basically drop out of the protest movement. They even drop out of this imagined political protest community. But a few people still think that they haven't lost their sense of efficacy. But the lack of effectiveness of their legitimate protest makes them think that maybe the government is not legitimate. So it delegitimizes the government because they're not listening to the people, which is really what happened in Britain. The fact that the government lied to them <laughs> about Iraq on weapons of mass destruction, and you know, and we know now because there's been a, a huge investigation of what led Britain to go into Iraq. It was on the base of lies. And the United uh, States. And, of course, the United States, but the British were far more skeptical of it. We were not because we were attacked. You see, being attacked, we immediately identified all as American. On September 10th in this country, 2001, this was a very divided country, and many Democrats did not believe that George W. Bush was a legitimate president. He had won his presidency 5-4 in the Supreme Court. That stopped the recount in Florida. That probably would have given the Democrat the presidency. So we were an extremely divided country. But an attack on your group, on one of the potential social identity that you have, increases the salience and the importance of that identity. And we all felt American. On, I think, September 18th, 2001, a poll showed that George W. Bush had a 91% approval, which is the highest approval that any president ever had since World War II. So you can see that we all rallied against the flag, so we all very much became patriotic American. People rushed 
to volunteer for intelligence community, joined the army, police forces. It was a huge rush. And so, so you see it was a bottom-up phenomenon, this rush. It wasn't the military saying, we need you. People just can't volunteer, and they were refusing folks at the time. So the point is that America was ready to go to war. The British were not, they had not been attacked, and so they were far more skeptical than, than we were, and we were ready to accept the rationale of the government. Well, up to a point, I mean, remembering that time, there were many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people here in the U.S. protesting in February of 2003. They didn't get very much airtime on the mainstream media. But the question comes back to who are these communities who end up actually committing acts of terrorism? Where are they? They're in the United States. They're in Europe. They're in other countries. What is that process? So uh, let me go back to the third condition, and then I'll answer. The third condition is a sense of moral outrage of the outgroup aggression against your group. And so what I just described as American volunteering in outrage by what al-Qaeda did to us on September 11 is a good illustration. If you looked at President Bush's speech to Congress, it's very much the language that I'm talking about here. You know, why did they attack us? They hate us. Yeah, uh, they hate our freedom. They hate our freedom. They hate who we are. And that's not really the case. It's very much this escalation of the aggressor. They saw us as the enemy. We immediately on September 12th saw them as the enemy. So it's this moral outrage that kind of drives a few, a very few people within that community to volunteer now to defend their attacked community. So what is this imagined community? This imagined community is worldwide. It does not take any linkage to anybody else to imagine yourself to identify with victims being barrel bombed in or even destroyed as what we call collateral damage for a member who identifies with the victims and thinks he's part of this imagined community they could be here in the United States they could be in Britain they definitely are in France they see the bombing they morally outrage that I cannot stand by and do nothing, enough is enough, very much what Theresa May said with the outrage in Manchester. I'm going to rip up civil rights in Britain, enough is enough. I mean, and and that's exactly what they say. So a lot of those people say, now I have to do something. And these people, I mean, ironically, as you write about and as you've talked about, Many of them are engineers, engineering students. There are people who are married. There's one guy that identified with John Travolta. There's people who are gay. There are people who are westernized in many ways. And those kinds of acts of violence, whether they be the invasion of Iraq in 2003 or drone attacks against civilians, that kind of thing. Now, the drone attacks really generated the two attacks that we had in 2009, 2010 in this country, namely the subway plot in uh, September 2009 by this fellow Najib Lajaji and two of his friends. And that's because they were uh, uh, Pashtun and they identified with people being killed by the drones in the Fatah, the federally administered tribal area. And uh, same thing with the Times Square bomber, the failed bomber. Again, he's from Peshawar, identified with the victim being killed and thought that he could stop it or actually seek revenge by carrying an attack on Times Square. The irony of this is that 
people who commit political violence do it for a reason. But once they commit the violence, the public completely ignores the reason. They only focus on the violence. And so it's completely counterproductive. And you can see, and people just decontextualize it. They don't really want to know why people did it. They just kind of treat them as the savages. And, you know, how, who could do that, you know, to people? Who could be such indiscriminate killer, mass murderer? They don't really care <laughs> about the motivation. And if you do try to understand the other person, people can say, well, whose side are you on? So uh, there is a strong pressure from your own in-group to really kind of rally to the in-group of just looking at the out-group enemy in one dimension as pure evil. And that speaks to what you said at the beginning of our conversation, which is when you have intelligence agencies who paint the world in sort of broad black and white brushstrokes of good and evil, even though these are the people who are trying to do the analysis, if you can't understand why people are doing things, how effective is your counterterrorism strategy going to be? completely ineffective. You can throw as many people and as many resources, unless you understand the problem, you're just throwing money away. And you're throwing people away because they look at the wrong places and they're trying to do the the wrong thing. So, you know, right now we have, again, become very divided with the election, with, you know, this country split and our government is actually making things worse by completely vilifying the enemy. They don't really want to know. Now it's all Muslim. You have the Muslim ban. (laughs) And so, in a sense, by targeting a much wider population, you actually increase this political protest community who now feels like, gee, I'm, I'm being attacked. I mean, this guy is now targeting me. So we have now more attacks both in Europe and we have a few here, but we have a very different Muslim community than the rest of Europe. Tell us about that. Well, basically, we don't have a Muslim community. We have many communities. In the United States? In the United States. Same as Europe. But uh, in Europe, you have predominant communities where we don't. I mean, in France, the progeny of the Algerians who came in the 50s and 60s to rebuild France after World War II. In Germany, you have the Turks who did the same thing. And you have the South Asian who went to Britain. So those were the dominant We actually have, in a sense, an American Muslim community that was African-American and kind of came from the nation of Islam and then it kind of broke and, you know, so one is still kind of nation of Islam, the other became more orthodox. So you have African-American. Malcolm X. Malcolm X, who at first was Nation of Islam, but became an Orthodox Muslim towards the end of his life and was killed actually because of that by, it seems, agents of the Nation of Islam. But then you have the children of the immigrants. But those were very, because in the 60s and 70s and even 80s, we didn't really have this open system that Europe has. And so we only accepted the elite. We accepted physicians, we accepted engineers, we accepted university professors. So the people in the United States are actually part of the elite. And American Muslims are actually richer than the rest of the population in average. They're usually better educated and so on, because what you have are the children of an upper-class group. So it's very, very different from Europe, where you have you know, pockets of poverty, intense poverty around large cities that we just don't have here. And as you've talked about, you have a welfare state in Europe that we don't have here. You've got people who are able to just barely get by, who are bored, who have a lot of time on their hands, 
who are disaffected with the society that they're living in aren't really part of it and who then find a sense of meaning? Yes, yeah, so let's talk about France. Because in a sense, France has the greatest problem and the largest Muslim population. The great irony of all of this is as French Muslim are by far the best adapted and the best uh, integrated in French society. But within the larger French Muslim society, you have young people living in the banlieue, in the suburbs, around large cities that completely feel excluded. And they're excluded because they basically drop out of school. You know, it's not their norms and kind of they go into drug dealing. And since 1992-93, the French basically adapted our we're going to be tough on drugs. And so they really kind of arrest and rearrest those young people who spend a lot of their time in prison. It's kind of a revolving door. And they really don't feel part of the society. They're not Algerian. Their parents or their grandparents, when they go visit, the Algerians don't look at them as Algerians. They don't really feel French right. because the French don't really give them jobs and so on. And, you know, there's many studies and journalistic investigations showing that if you have an Algerian name, you don't get even an interview. But if you have the same credential but the French right. name, yeah, of course, you're hired. So for a while, they were just, you know, they called themselves the Boer, which was a slang term for Arab or Berber. Then people saw them as Maghrebin, North African from the Maghreb. And then around the mid-90s, they started looking at themselves as Muslim, the same people. And now they started looking at heroes. So, you know, people like to think of themselves as a little bit better as the other group. And the type of heroes that they saw were really those that were prevalent at the time of the Muslim miracle, the Islamic miracle, namely in the 7th and 8th century, where Islam basically conquered half of the world in a century. And so this is the glorious days of Islam. That's why they become Salafis. They don't really become moderate, mainstream Muslim. They really become Salafi because very much they kind of look at that. That kind of makes them feel better. And there wasn't really much in France in the 2000s because France was not really involved in Iraq. Remember, France refused. The problem really started around 2012 where this guy, Mohammed Merah, started killing soldiers and Jews in, I think it was March 2012, and that's because France was involved in the surge in Afghanistan. Now, those young French people identify with Arabs, and so what started happening in Syria was extremely relevant and pertinent to them, and you had a wave of over 2,000 young French people who went to Syria in 2013 and 14 because the first people who went there basically send on their Twitter account images of them basically living in five-bedroom villas when people escaped and fled the army of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. At that time, they were still together and left their car. So the guy's driving a big SUV, lives in a nice villa with a swimming pool, and sends pictures there to his friends who live in poverty, six to a room in the banlieue of Paris. Well, that really looks attractive. And so they decide that that kind of uh, started this whole tsunami of young French people coming to Syria. Which isn't 
political ideology or moral outrage. No, this, this is this image of, well, we are somebody now. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, I think one thing that's so important to talk about is if you have people in a country, and the same thing could apply to African Americans in this country, who were of this country but treated poorly within it, what is your sense of identity? The way you're talking about people of Algerian origin in France who don't feel either Algerian or French, it is our human nature, whether we think about it all day or not, to belong to something that actually gives you a good sense of yourself and of something that you belong to for the greater good. And, and meaning to your life. Yeah. You know, you're, you're part of this group. And so a lot of young French men and women went there because, you know, girls were also attracted to all of that. The trouble really started around uh, late 2014, summer of 2014, especially in 2015, when Al-Qaeda and ISIS started fighting with each other. Now all those young kids from the banlieue were totally confused. They did not know. I mean, who are they? I mean, they're not ideologically minded. They're people who dropped out of school. They're not ideologically, not even attracted to ideology. So they were totally confused. They did not know what to do. And then... In January of 2015, after finally the expansion of ISIS was stopped in Kobani, all those villas and so on were destroyed, and the attraction was no longer there. So now you have a large wave going back home to Europe, and this is a real problem in Europe. What do you do with those people? Are they people disillusioned with fighting and wanting to go back to French society to reintegrate, or are those ISIS soldiers sent there to carry out what happened on November 13th, 2015, the Bataclan massacre, 130 people were killed. So that's a big dilemma for all the intel community, and they completely overrun. They don't know where to look, you know, and basically what you have, there is a profile, but unfortunately the profile is subjective. The profile is, I am a soldier defending my community, and when people come back, and they feel like, well, I'm demobilized now, I can go back to civilian life. It's very hard to redistinguish those from those guys who come back as soldiers <laughs> intending right. to kill. And that's really the dilemma that we have in Europe. Now, we don't really have that here because very few Americans actually went to Syria and we don't have people coming back. We actually stopped them at the airport, preventing them from going there. I think we arrest about 100 people, over 100. So. Did we finish going through the conditions that are necessary for somebody to actually commit an act of terrorism? Uh, Yes, so let me recapitulate very quickly. At first, you have the activation of a politicized social identity under three conditions, escalation of conflict with the group that you define yourself against in contrast to, disillusionment with peaceful protest, which delegitimizes the state to you, and moral outrage the third, at an egregious attack against your imagined community makes, that's the second big step, some people did some, a very, very few people, it's a self-selective process to volunteer as soldiers to defend your community. And as a soldier, basically, the issue of violence has been resolved as a soldier's kill. So... These people, because they're not part of a formal top-down military, they're soldiers in identification. But as you describe, they're sometimes making these failed bombs. They're arguing with each other. They're getting lost in traffic. 
a lot of them don't know what they're doing. That's correct. That's correct, because they're not trained. <laughs> and it's not a group that has gone through boot camp for 12 weeks to kind of make them Marines, you know, which is you transform a civilian to a Marine, you give him 12 weeks of boot camp and he comes out to Marine. Now, those have none of that. And so there is a lot of infighting, there's a lot of personality conflict, and of course personality conflict gets masqueraded as ideological conflict. No, you don't like the other guy, and you try to find a reason that that's acceptable, as opposed to saying, you know, I, I think he's, a, he's an idiot and I'm not going to follow him. And you don't really have a top-down authority to be able to resolve conflict among people and keep the discipline. So you have a very undisciplined group, they basically kind of act out what they think who they are should act. Uh, so at first it was kind of building bombs, but as you point out, very few people are good at that. I mean, you almost need hands-on training like an apprenticeship. Some people are good. They, they have a background in chemistry and can actually build bombs, but most of the bombs that went off were from people who were trained. But now they're doing things like driving vehicles into... That's a point. So people say, well, why bombs? I mean, we can use guns. So they use guns. Bataclan is very much guns. But now, because guns are much more difficult to get in Europe, people can't really get guns. So now they use knives and cars. So you can see very much that they still want to be soldiers and still want to do something. But you can't just have a Muslim who has a knife or a Muslim who's driving being suspected of being a terrorist. And that's really becoming a real problem for everybody. What about in the United States? I mean, you examine, I think it's 66 neo-jihadist actions since 9-11. So since 9-11-2001, and you go through 2011, there's many more in Europe. What is the actual, in your view, nature of the terrorist threat, the neo-jihadist terrorist threat in the United States and what are the most appropriate counterterrorism actions that, if our government were rational, it would do? Right. Uh, don't ever accuse a politician of being irrational. No, don't worry, we won't. <laughs> um, we have a much lesser problem than Europe because there you have people who can feel excluded, and so you have a much larger potential base. Now, uh, the database that I published in my book, The 66 Terrorist Incident in the 10 Years After 9-11, I continued the database. So now you actually have much more. You have almost a doubling uh, since about 2014 in Europe. But they're, they're very different. So instead of being like the Madrid bombing or the London bombing, where the average 3.2 violent actors per incident, now you, you have closer to one. So you have many more incidents. You actually have close to about 25 to 30 a year now. By lone actors. By mostly lone actors, who are not, of course, as effective, but that doesn't mean they cannot be effective, as we found out both in Orlando and San Bernardino. 49 people killed with an assault rifle, and the same thing in San Bernardino, about 22, I think, again, two assault rifles. So what should people do about it? Well, now that I have explained the progression, the model of how they become violent, well, there are several things. First is you try to perhaps prevent politicized community from emerging, and that means, you know, you listen to the grievances. I mean, by listening to grievances, you actually give them respect, and people actually don't think that 
the government is not legitimate because basically just listening is, legitimizes the government. Instead, no, they don't want to listen to what the grievances are. Just listen to the grievances. The second is don't allow this to escalate. You have to have a very disciplined force because, in a sense, the government has far more discipline than those kids. As I said, it's bottom-up, and they don't have any discipline. So the government has more responsibility because they can act much more than this imagined community that really does not have the discipline. So the government, don't allow it to escalate. How do you not allow it to escalate? Well, you don't declare a major victory against the jihadis each time you arrest somebody in a sting operation. That's nonsense. First, we never have done anything. It was really very much provoked by the government informant of the government or the FBI undercover. You know, right. they don't have that. You see, this is not compatible with a liberal democracy as far as the European are concerned, so they don't have sting operations in Europe. Yeah, those sting operations, as you write about them, are, are just a sham. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the government is trying to kind of still fuel this sense of panic in the population that we have a real problem in this country and basically point out as the result of this thing operation as being the result, which is, of course, self-generated. So it, okay. it's a kind of vicious cycle. So you don't do So you any listen of that. to them, you don't escalate through right. doing these sham sting operations. Right, and especially you don't allow egregious attacks on this imagined community. So bombing civilians in Syria will absolutely ensure that we're going to have terrorist incident in the United States. It's really that simple. It's kind of the reverse of what Secretary Rumsfeld was saying 15 years ago. We bombed them there so we don't have to kill them here. No, no. If you bomb them th there, you'll have to deal with the problem here. You'll have a terrorist problem. So It's like a social physics. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a complex adaptive system, if you think about it. And you have to look at it dialectically between the interaction between the government and this imagined community. And they each respond to the other. So now, once you have violence, what do you do? Because I'm trying here, I've described preventing violence. Well, now, the key is on the government to try to craft a sense of identity that, in a sense, surpasses those smaller conflicted identities of those groups. So, for instance, I just described earlier the type of division that we had on September 10th in the country. Once we had an outsider attack, like 9-11, we all became American. We forgot about our internal difference. We all very much angry American who wanted to kill everybody who was even remotely connected with what George Bush called the terrorists. Yeah, which wasn't entirely universal and certainly wasn't entirely rational and also didn't last. I mean, as you said, you know, right. Alabamans were on September 12, 2001, were very much pro-Yankee. They were Americans. They were Americans, but it didn't last. No, and now the Alabamans, again, like anything, it fades over time. It's a, there is nothing stable. There is no stable terrorist personality. There is no stable ideology. There yeah. is no stable. So there is no stability. It's very much a system that adapts to each other and changes fluidly. But when you're talking about the government helping to craft an identity that is greater than the sort of like incipient potential terrorist right. identity, what 
would that look like? What does that look like? Is anybody doing that, doing it well? No, no. We're doing the exact opposite. So you say, look, we're all American. Anybody, Native Americans are Americans, African Americans are Americans, Muslims are Americans. No, what we're doing is Muslims are not Americans. And you know what? We're going to have a ban on Muslim immigration in this country or even a ban on Muslims coming to this country as visitors. So we're doing the exact opposite. But we have to craft this notion of we're all Americans. Now, during Olympic Games, during international competition, we all kind of feel American. So you can see that it is possible. But that's really the challenge with the government trying to tap down the differences among Americans to really promote this large community, this large imagined community of Americans, as opposed to we're all divided and we hate each other. Which would mean not only rhetoric, but action. Absolutely. In which there was real enforcement of non-discrimination laws and things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in a sense, that's a little bit how we started bringing African-Americans within the mainstream of the United States in the 1960s, where but I think that's being walked back. And unfortunately, we're still very much a fairly segregated country. You know, we still have African-American ghettos. The schools are segregated. And so that's rolling back, unfortunately. And so you have the sense of exclusion. And sometimes that translates to what's the point of voting because it's not going to change anything. So you have this disillusionment in a sense, the Black Lives Matter movement is really a response to this moral outrage of police killing black people for being black. Exactly. You have interviewed a lot of terrorists. Yes. In your conversations with them, did any of them have a change of heart? Did they have a re-examination of identity? What were those conversations like? Um some, some kind of looked back and said, no, nah, I think that was kind of stupid because, you know, they're like human beings. And so when they're morally outraged, they feel they have to do something, but then they cool down a little bit after and say, yeah, it might not be the best thing for me to do. So it depends very much. I mean, do they feel terrible about the victims in Syria? Of course they do. That will not change. But uh, do they feel differently from either trying to go over there? Yeah, they, they, some of them said, yeah, that, that was probably not the smartest thing I've ever done. A few of them flip and say, oh, yeah, I can help the government because I understand everything. So you don't have this notion that there is something ingrained in them, fanaticism, that you cannot change. And once a terrorist, always a terrorist. And you have to lock them up for life and throw out the key because they're the worst of the worst. No, absolutely not. People change, evolve over time. I'm not the same person I was five years ago, even 20 years ago. In your conversations with intelligence communities, you are a former CIA officer in academic communities, in political communities, if you are, for example, addressing Congress, do you find an openness to your ideas? Because they really do run counter to the kind of rhetoric that we see in the media and out of the mouths of most politicians. Um, the reception of my ideas is mixed. Early on, when I, I wrote Understanding Terror Networks and even Little as Jihad, I was still very angry about the 9-11 attacks. And at that point, I had not interviewed people. So I realized that, you know, they were human beings like me. When you talk to a person for about a, a week, 
in prison six hours a day. I mean, you, you start getting a feel for that person. Those early ideas really had a lot of traction and made me one of the most popular analysts or terrorist experts. Now, since I basically left my uh, consulting with the government in April of 2013 and having almost a 30 years experience of accumulation of a lot of data in my life dealing with insurgency and what people call terrorism, you know, this type of political violence, you know, I started stepping back and reflecting what I did. <laughs> because, you know, when, when you involve, when you run a war, you know, you're just too busy <laughs> doing it to really completely reflect. And the ideas of first promoted in misunderstanding terrorism and turning to political violence, which is a much larger elaboration of Chapter 4 of Misunderstanding Terrorism. So this is, and going back to history to look at other examples of this type of political violence, because of course I cannot write about either the interviews I make, because when they're done in a legal context, I have to sign a non-disclosure agreement, otherwise mm -hmm. I don't get to talk to them, because supposedly whatever they tell me is secret and my access to all the classified material. I cannot talk about it. I cannot write anything about it. It'd be all wiped out by the CIA. So I had to really kind of look at other ways to capture subjectivity of politically violent actors throughout history and try to, to see if there is any commonality between what I've experienced personally and learned personally. And I saw really this, you know, very large commonality. The same mechanism that I describe is true for the French Revolution as it is now for the global neo-jihadis. So as I'm trying to say is that for the politician, what I wrote early is very popular. What I'm writing now is terribly unpopular. I get a very good reception in academia because in a sense they are a little bit more neutral. And with the intel community, since they identify themselves as heroes killing the bad guys by kind of saying, well, you know, you can't contribute to the violence by escalating. You know, this is not a popular message. So you can see that part of my message are popular, part are not. And, and it really depends which writings that I had as opposed to my message in general. What kind of a citizen movement would it take or political movement would it take to actually have a society that didn't basically escalate, have a government that is escalating terrorism, whether they think they're doing that or not, it seems that, that they are participants in it. Right. Well, I think the nature of American democracy, where you have people being elected because they're tough on crime, they're tough on drugs, and now they're tough on terrorism, <laughs> inherently builds in this escalation. Yeah. So it's a little bit how we elect people that really rewards the people who escalate. And then you have this really unspoken conspiracy of all the intel agencies saying, oh, no, we have a huge problem here. Whereas the numbers show that more people die of lightning strike than from terrorism. I interviewed somebody recently, a researcher who was talking about disease and the roots of disease in ecological fragmentation. So you have, just as an example, a bat that carries a virus that's very deadly to people, but as long as the bat stays in the forest and eats the fruit, we're all fine. But when they log the forest and cut them down, they go into orchards, spread the disease, and then we're all screwed. And I can't help but thinking that there's like a social science equivalent of that. Like when our kind of social ecosystems are in balance, we're healthier. Well, yes, if you have a view from another planet 
if you're a Martian and looked at the Earth and you could control what Earthlings do, you may try to engineer this type of rationality within population. Unfortunately, we're not like that. I think that we grew up evolutionary thinking in terms of people from our village, people from the next village or our cave and next cave. And you see that what I'm describing as political violence is really kind of the extreme implication of this kind of division of two imagined groups. So what we need to do is really to understand that this is always a temptation of us human beings trying to kill other people. And we have to be eternally vigilant to not give in to this temptation because, you know, we've killed a lot of people throughout history. Let's face it, we're a very violent species. Well, and as you say, it worked for us in the history of our evolution, but right now it's kind of doing, it could lead to our annihilation. Very much so, very much so. And, you know, in a sense, we grew up too smart for our own good because now we've invented technology that actually could wipe us out. Whereas before, we didn't. I mean, you know, the type of damage you did with just a knife or even a piece of wood is actually fairly limited. But now we have weapons that could destroy millions in one conflagration. What is your hope for your work? Just enlighten a dozen people who may then enlighten other people and so on. I'm very pessimistic about my ability to convince people through just lectures. People are convinced at the lectures, but then they go home or they go back to their job and they don't think about it anymore. It's just, you know, it's just a one-off type thing. But, you know, a lot of people, just like you, have read it, think, you know, maybe there's something to it and you broadcast a message. Uh, Maybe some people will listen and be tempted to either listen to some of the lectures I've given, you know, buy my book and kind of say, you know, it kind of makes sense and maybe you should try that because certainly what we've tried to combat what we call terrorism has not worked. Mark Sageman is a forensic psychiatrist and political sociologist. He's author of several books. We're talking today about misunderstanding terrorism. What's the name of the new book? The new book is is called Turning to Political Violence, and it's really an elaboration. Actually, this book was really supposed to be the cliff notes of the larger book. The larger book is about 600 pages, and I'm looking at uh, campaigns of political violence going back to the French Revolution because that's where the political arena started, including everybody in, within a population of a nation, to World War I and see this evolution to indiscriminate killing, which really happened with the, first, with the Wall Street bombing of 1920 where 33 people were killed. They were strangers. It wasn't really so much targeted. It was indiscriminate killing. So I want to trace the evolution of indiscriminate killing, which what people call terrorism nowadays. But, you know, it started out very much in the French Revolution. So for all those who like really wonderful, interesting stories about history, but with theoretical explanation of really what happened from the point of view of the perpetrators, that's a book for you. Mark Sageman, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's my privilege. You've been listening to the Radio Cafe Science Edition. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, please email me at mc at radiocafe.media. Please check out our website at scienceradiocafe.org. We're on Twitter at Radio Cafe MC and at facebook.com slash radiocafe. 
Many thanks to Steady Networks, providing managed IT solutions and computer support for thousands of people in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. You can find out more at SteadyNetworks.com. And they are part of Dotfoil Computer Services of Santa Fe, where I myself have been bringing my computer for many years, and they are awesome. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.